Ensemble 74 presents What is Coming? Conversations for Tomorrow, a 74 podcast series by filmmaker and 74 co-founder Alpan Eşenil. Hello, welcome to another edition of 74 original podcast series What is Coming? Today's guest is philosopher, political scholar, and historian Mikhail Minakov. Mr. Minakov's studies focus on human experience, the social knowledge, phenomenon of ideology, political creativity, history of modernization. Mr. Minakov, thank you for joining us and sharing your valuable time. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's Great pleasure to have you here. Mr. Minakov, uh, we're going through extremely difficult and also bewildering times. Politicians, journalists, technocrats, digital utopians, everybody's talking about a change that is come or happen after this pandemic. But from my observations, I see nobody has a, a clear vision about what that change is going to be or a clear vision about a better future at all. And there is one thing that is certain, the whole world is locked down and we are heading towards an unknown future. Or maybe there is a pre-designed future that is ahead of us are not aware of. Mr. Minako, what are you thinking? Where are we heading towards? What is your perspective on this? Well, uh, Indeed, the, whenever crisis starts, uh, big human collectives or uh, individual, uh, individual personalities, they do care about the future. And they start realizing that usually future is unpredictable. We, don't, we simply don't know what is coming. But that's, that's part of life in critical or non-critical periods. Crisis just opens up our vision to non-ideological situation. Reality comes into the picture. And if we look at the contemporary pandemic, part of it is the the, the so-called infodemia. You are right when you said that uh, everyone worries. And this worrisome feeling, this feeling that something is coming to us, is even more dangerous than the virus itself or the the illness that it brings with itself. I was looking at what's going on with uh, Western and non-Western societies, how states around the world respond to uh, to the pandemic. And I see that we entering in the certain certain type of choice that is predestined by trilemma. Several years ago, Danny Rodrik, a Harvardian uh, political and economic scholar who uh, designed the trilemma, which it means it is impossible to rule, uh, to live in global life with respect to interests of national state, of uh, economies, and of democracy. So you have to make choices two out of three. And Danny Roderick shows how it works for globalization. 
This dilemma can be translated into uh, the COVID-19 situation. So basically, today we have trilemma when it is impossible to rule and fight epidemic effectively with equal respect to the sovereignty of national state, survival of population, and respect to rights and liberties of a citizen. So it's only two can be achieved simultaneously. So which is, glo- which is uh, globalism against populist nationalism? Is that the choice that we have to well, make in the future? You are absolutely right. Here is, uh, I would say there's three uh, elements create three choices. Either illiberal sovereignty, which we see blooming in Central and Eastern Europe, in Russia, but also in many other countries, including United States, and Trumpism is just another type of this illiberal sovereignism. It can be populist, it can be uh, something, an ideology and movement connected to establishment itself, but it's definitely uh, enemy to globalization, globality, and universal uh, rights of human rights or uh, civic uh, civic choice. But we can also have a different choice. For example, if we make decision that national state will be adhered to the rights of citizens and uh, liberties, human rights, then we will have democracy with depopulating, uh, with dep- huge depopulation. Here, the the proper quarantine, the proper anti-epidemic measures cannot be done. Mm -hmm. And then there's another, and quite often you you already see it in in April this year, when governments are so inefficient and they don't care neither for sovereignty nor for uh, citizens, nor for populations, when society and small collectives and individuals start working on their own. And this option is a decentralized anarchy. When society and small groups decide for themselves how to survive. And this was usually the case when uh, in medieval Turkey, in medieval Europe, the, the local authorities were the key players in providing this or the other community with survival techniques. And to define uh, the lead, the leadership and the, 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 the way that the bureaucracy would work in a global system, how, how is that going to be defined in a, in a global, uh, globalized world? Well, if we look right now at what's happening, we definitely see that there's a strong uh, competition between transnational organizations like United Agents, uh, United Nation, uh, Nations and its agencies, and WHO is one of them, World Health Organization, is now being repressed by one of the biggest nation states in the world, by United States. Yeah. Which, which here, always claimed that they are actually not a nation state. Well, exactly. But here you, you see behavior of the federal government exactly as a nation, nation yes, state. Yes, that's also one of the big just that struck me that's going on that's going on with the Trump administration because they are starting to use the word nation state which we never heard before in America this is actually totally 
a bit anti-American. Yeah, well, it, it provokes some discussions from 19th century in the United States. But yes, it's a new situation. And these polemics and, well, actually decisions that are being made, they are made in a way that reflect this type of ideology. Trump administration acts as a liberal sovereignist nation-state government. But we also should pay attention that in addition to transnational and national governments, there are subnational players, mm -hmm. uh, mayors of big cities, or governors of uh, separate states in the United States, or govern, uh, governors of regions in uh, like smaller units within a state. They have their own policy, and they look uh, for bigger support from uh, individual humans in their own countries. So in a way, what I see today in different parts of the world, there will be winners, either these transnational organizations that will show that they are actually better in uh, providing this biopolitical response to epidemics and other types of crises, or national governments, or subnational units, governors, states, and so on. So basically what you're saying is that we're witnessing a war that's not fought between countries, but it's been fought between two worldviews, which is globalization against national, national, uh, national states. Is that the kind of turmoil that we're going in? Because we also see, I watch television, on one, uh, we see, which I agree, they're pushing towards a more multidisciplinary vision, a world that's not only being run by politicians and bureaucrats, but a world that's being run by scientific people, by, uh, by uh, creative people, by Silicon Valley for you see Bill Gates all the time on television as being there as a spokesperson. And uh, is this the kind of new world order that the global world is pushing towards, leaning towards? So are we going to see a weakening of politicians and the, the, the system is not going to be run only by bureaucracy, by technocrats, but more... Uh, designed maybe by computers, by creative people, by scientists? Uh, actually, my major idea right now is that this crisis, global, national, subnational level crisis with uh, COVID and with economic decline, creates an impetus, huge impetus for human beings to be very creative in building new political entities, new politics. The thing is that basically a human being is the existence. And in the world, there's a lot of different types of uh, existences. Human existence is different from all the rest, only in creativity. We can express, we can create. And this creativity it can be done either in social issues, in art, in science, but also in politics. Politics is a sphere where human beings can create new beginnings. And here the, the crisis shows that the old 
republics, the old political structures, institutions that we built in 20th century are actually not working well. We need to reestablish political structures. And it opens up the, uh, the, the floor for creative classes from business, from science, from uh, humanities and social sciences. But that's very important. We must pay attention that the old political institutions cannot actually respond well to the level of globality we live in and to the number of challenges that this globality brings us. Before... But, yes, please, please. Yeah, please continue. You know, I was just... Yeah. Before uh, we started this interview, you, you made a very important suggestion that the, the epidemic is actually another way globality, globalization shows itself. And I agree, because uh, this long path of globalization, when humanity started communicating with each other from different uh, places in the world, started basically with empires of 19th centuries and the competition between these empires which led to the World War I. So in a way, global crises and global economy, global science, global humanitarian actions, they coexist. And globality has its dark side and light side. Right now we turned uh, to be in the, on the dark side of globalization. And it's up to us in every country or in every region the, the way we can actually turn this dark light, the dark side into light. But it also uh, brings us the ultimate question to the individual. What do we want? What are we going to choose as an individual human being? Are we going to lean towards altruism or self-interest because that's always it comes back to the individual what makes us uh, in the pursuit of happiness in the pursuit of human existence which one because the soviet union was built on altruism uh, to create a better society through a total collective uh, society which didn't function and of and then we see Capitalism, which was also an ideology built totally on self-interest, which is also not working. So what, what, what kind of uh, individual existence is awaiting for us in this new world? And what do we have to choose? Well, this choice is always here, either to be selfish or to feel solidarity. We are talking with you on the 1st of May which is the day of global solidarity between people who work, people who demand equality. And I wish I could honestly answer, oh, yes, of course, human beings are inclined to be equal, to be solidary with each other. But this is not true. Basically, the, the, basic, choice, the, the basic choice that the human beings have is to continue its life, survival. This is why biology and biopolitics is so important. Even the, the most rigorous uh, moralists like Immanuel Kant, 
uh, agreed that the first option is to continue your life. And only then, if we still live on, we can make moral choices. We can make choice for, uh, for freedom. But for this, we have to survive. And this is the catch where state, this Leviathan, comes to us and offers, oh, actually, we should, we should agree that life and continuation of life uh, is the basic service that government will provide. And then in this moment, the, the sovereignty is vested only into the government, into the power, into the authorities. And citizen, a human being having the rights, suddenly lose the status of sovereign. Mm -hmm. So here, when we have to choose between solidarity and egoism, we have to remember that if we uh, make the final choice only for egoism, it means that we will become just animals controlled by this, uh, as uh, Thomas Hobbes called it, this earthly god of Leviathan. If we make choice for solidarity, we can actually uh, also see that there's uh, some response to our basic needs. For example, right now, solidarity, uh, the choice for solidarity means to socially distance, to provide your near ones, your fellow men and women with an opportunity to survive as well. But this self-distancing uh, is a strange, uh, paradoxical situation because usually solidarity means coming up together for some joint action. So in a way, the, the epidemic provides us with more than just two choices. We have a variety of choices in which humans will definitely go uh, for, for the option of... Uh, of this biopolitics and uh, egoism more often, but there will definitely be a number of people who would, uh, who would try to change the situation for better, to make us freer, to make us uh, more solidary. But that's, will, that will be a rare choice. Let's face it, egoism and fear for life is too strong and they provoke much stronger emotions than uh, any liberal right or any uh, left type of solidarity. So basically you're meaning this choice and this leaning towards self-interest is in a certain way also giving up our own personal freedom and liberty. So people yes. are willing to choose to give up their freedom in terms of to survive. Exactly. Especially if we have these strong national states with strong authorities. George so Agamben, mm -hmm. if you remember, there's an Italian uh, living philosopher, George Agamben, calls such a human being that used to have rights, a citizen, a nude body, some uh, somebody, uh, the, the human being that gave up his or her own rights because of some other choices that the national governments are creating. And so the right now, 
perfect example, sorry to interrupt, is yes. actually the what happened in in the after the fall of the Soviet Union, because uh, after the fall, the West stepped in and they wanted to bring democracy to Russia, to Russia overnight, which is a nation uh, who never experienced democracy in their lives. It was run under the Char regime, under the totalitarian regime for a long time. Then it was replaced by the Soviet Union. And the overnight injection, which they back then called shock therapy, uh, uh, which was supposed to be the transforming of the Russian society into democracy ended up in total chaos. And it was a total failure. And this led to the rise of uh, Vladimir Putin. And Putin chose, instead of uh, choosing democracy and freedom, they gave up to it instead of other things like being a strong nation, like having more security and more having strength as a nation. Is is that kind of thing going to happen, you mean, globally after the pandemic, that nationalism is going to be on the rise? Well, it's uh, interesting. I, I cannot agree with you that Russia didn't have its own uh, democratic traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, in b- Before the creation of empire, peoples, different societies living in Eastern Europe and Western Eurasia, it's now basically the territory that was controlled by Soviet Union, they had their own ways of controlling those who are in power. And then modernization started in our part of the world in the form of absolutist monarchies, which ended up with the creation of this Russian empire. But even there, within the Russian empire, you can have this imperial center that tends to be plenipotential and strong, but also we have a number of communities living far, far away uh, without communication with this imperial center. And these communities had their own ways of self-preservation, decision-making. And another example are the, the Cossack communities in my country, Ukraine, or in Russia, or in many other parts of uh, Oh, like in Caucasus or in Central Asia. These were the communities of armed men and women who lived separately, well, mainly men at that time. Uh, And then this revolution that ended up with creation of Soviet Union, it also had very strong tendency to building of republic, looking for freedom, which was failing, basically, the the only one project out of 100 different projects, political projects, ended up and continued as a Soviet Union. But in 1991, you are right, the the option that we had, the choice that we made, all these 15 new societies, 15 new nations, was the choice for pluralist democracy, it was the choice for free market, and choice for national state. So in a way, we opened up a new era, but the populations that lived in these new nations, these populations didn't have personal experience of freedom. We had to imagine it, to invent it, and then uh, we ended up with the deepest crisis, economic, humanitarian crisis of the 90s. 
And here we see the parting ways of these Soviet societies living in different post-Soviet nations. Some of them have chosen authoritarianism, like in Belarus, like in Russia, like in Azerbaijan. Here, the freedom is impossible, basically, political freedom. However, the level of economic freedom can vary. There are nations that joined European structures, like Baltic countries. They are members of NATO, they are members of European Union, and there, for some time, the, the choice for liberty was expected to change the nature of the societies. However, recently, in recent five years, this choice for illiberal sovereignty is obvious there. So even there, this post-Soviet uh, nature of these societies is very strong. They also opt for exclusive, exclusivity, ethnic, national exclusivity, and democratic institutions built under very strong impact of the West do not function properly to save uh, human and civic rights. And in between, we have also a number of countries like Ukraine, like Georgia, your neighbor, and uh, like Moldova, where we constantly oscillate between the choice for freedom and the choice for strong hand that would bring us some security. But anyway, these societies like Ukrainian, Moldovan, and Georgian, we also tend to, in certain moments, we want to have a strong hand that will defend us. And in critical moments, that's usually the choice. Or in good times, we want to have free life. Uh, but these choices are never ended. So in several years, we will look like for, for different options. So in a way, these countries that exist between Russia and Turkey, they, our countries, uh, they sh our populations show adherence to freedom. And at the same time, political structures uh, intend to misuse, especially critical moments, to, to take away these freedoms. And this is why in Ukraine we had several repeating revolutions, as you know. Yeah. It led to ultimately uh, a civil war. Yes. And uh, I mean, it's a very, uh, talking about Ukraine, it's a very complicated situation. I, I've read about it, but it's for me as an outsider, it's very hard to analyze it because you also have a population that's Russian there who want to, who want their rights to be protected. And then you have the Ukrainian uh, people still, as you said, lean towards more the Euro European Union, who want more li uh, liberal state. And, uh, and this conflict there is never going to end. How do you think, let's say uh, Ukraine is a very good example. How can you find an optimal, optimum solution that's going to serve for the interest of the whole nation? Because what is really dangerous today is I see everywhere, even in the United States, the extreme increase of segregation in the society and politicians, because back in the days, politicians used to address the nation. And once they were chosen, elected in a democratic system, they were there to serve to the whole nation but now you see people, the politicians talking about their people 
and the others who didn't vote for them. Well, and the it, system and democracy is, I think, is getting really stuck into this. Uh, I think democracy, democracy is, lead, is, is, is losing its credibility, in my opinion. Well, that's actually the thing. Uh, and it returns us to this idea of creativity. Those democracies and autocracies that were built in 20th century, they decline. There's enough evidence of hard evidence in political science uh, that shows that approximately between 2002 and 2008, uh, democracies start declining. Oh, but also well-organized uh, autocracies also decline even for a longer period. Yeah. Instead, what we see rising, either deficient democracies, democracies that can be only like provide electoral uh, free elections or more or less uh, strong liberal rights, or in, they include um, citizens into decision-making. But that's still like these deficient, badly functioning democracies or deficient autocracies also, where autocratic figures try to establish non-free regimes, but also population is not that supportive, institutions don't work well, and that's more and more of these around the globe. And Ukraine is a case where, well, you, you said civil war. It's partially true, but only partially. Because here in Ukraine, we have, uh, at the same time, war of Russia against Ukraine. We have conflict between Russia and its allies with the West, and also a conflict within Ukraine. Also, uh, you, you said that it's like ethnic Russians versus uh, ethnic Ukrainians. It's, it's also not really the case, because the, uh, the Russian... Russophone Ukrainians, Ukrainophone Ukrainians, so different ethnic groups actually supported uh, the Ukrainian Republic in 2014. So they, they opted to stay together and keep the, uh, the democratic Ukraine as a choice. However, the war and the intervention of Russia into Ukraine and annexation of Crimea, they created incentives for very strong non-democratic uh, governance in the, on Ukrainian soil, because in the times of war, when part of your territory is taken away, when your sovereignty is con uh, contested, democracy stays like the marginal thing. And here we, we, we see that also revolution is not an option. For me, the, it's very important that even if revolutionary motivation was very much pro-democratic, pro-European, this doesn't mean that it will lead to closer ties with Europe or with democracy. The war that usually follows uh, revolution and statistically interventions, uh, civic wars and uh, civic conflicts, they follow every time the revolution is taking place. So in a way, revolutionary way of making progress is bad progress. It doesn't lead to freedom. And here, I think that democratic creativity, democratic movements should find other toolkits that avoid, uh, avoid revolutionary changes, force, use of force. 
And yes, uh, if you look at the global situation and the situation in Ukraine that reflects these processes, it shows that democracy is in crisis, is in decline, but that's the old democracies, old democratic institutions and forms. Here we should look how to ensure liberal rights of citizens, how we should ensure uh, small groups' rights and liberties, and the general population, the majorities, with equal rights. Because the major, uh, we talked about populism a little bit earlier. This populist choice is usually made by majorities of citizens in the case when they feel that their group rights, collective rights are endangered. And then these groups start supporting politicians who harm the individual rights. And here we see this authoritarian turn or illiberal turn as in Central Europe, for example. But how do we break this chain? Because then it becomes to the question is that election is also not a, is not a true representation of democracy. If you look at Germany, the, Nazi, the Nazis came to power through election. Of course, they didn't have the majority of the votes, but in the system, they had like 30-something votes. People voted for them, and then they took over the country. They, if you look at it, they are an elected government. So some group of, in this system, some group of people can come together in some kind of uh, social turmoil and vote for evil. We, we vote for something that is totally wrong, and this elected government can totally destroy democracy. So there is, uh, there is somewhere, there is a flaw in this democratic system. And how can we overcome this? How can we uh, break this chain? Well, in my opinion, and here I'm, I don't have the ready-made answer. I think that uh, the, the current crisis that combines epidemic and uh, economic decline, it will force not only elites, power elites, but also populations, smaller collectives, to uh, uh, find the way for living prosperously for their own. And the choice for the far right, neo-Nazis, is one of the options. However, what, it's interesting what's going on right now in Italy, where I live, in Calabria, that's a big, pro, uh, big region in, in the south of Italy, a governor tries to undermine the quarantine. She is now trying to let the businesses and populations go outside and stop the self-isolation. However, central government and mayors are trying to obstruct her. Mayors know the real picture on the ground. They see these uh, non-buried uh, non bodies or the people in the corridors who cannot have access to ventilators, they understand that what is a populist leader, as she is, uh, is doing a lot of harm. And it immediately creates a new form that is not, uh, that is not envisaged by Italian constitution when uh, the central government and the mayors, so very local uh, grassroots communities, start cooperating in order to undermine 
an unwise politician, a populist. Here we will see definitely around the globe different forms of this type of creativity. It's also happening uh, in Iran when local communities try to reestablish political order within them in order to survive these hard periods. It may, uh, the, the question is how long living uh, the, these uh, political, small political uh, inventions will last. Some of them will definitely last on local level. But also, if you look at transnational response, uh, like European Union is looking for a smart way to ensure that the, this joint European project will continue to evolve and be efficient in providing European uh, citizens of member states with better options that the national governments offer. So, in a way, this uh, creativity, the, the idea that human beings will always, well, we, we will always find the way to survive, but also to better the situation until we make the, the fatal choice that may end up with this generalized apocalypse and humanity will not exist anymore. But before this tragic end, we still can show that we are brave. We are inventive and we are solidary. Also, of course, uh, I work a lot with, I'm a filmmaker and I work a lot with young people. And since we're talking about the future, uh, especially the so-called Generation Z. And I talk with these uh, young people and they are in a very pessimistic vision towards the future and they have a very different mentality towards looking at the world and i uh, they don't believe in democracy because uh, obviously from the time they were born uh, democracy failed because if you look at the west in the last 20 years uh, the the invasion of iraq uh, what's going on in the middle east was supposedly done to bring there the Western way of living, uh, the Western way of democracy, but all these, all these ventures uh, didn't work. Iraq turned into chaos, look what happened to Libya, the, the Arab Spring, and then what happened in 2008 in the crash of the global markets. And uh, they have a very pessimistic vision towards the future. And they are the ones who are going to overtake the world in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And how, uh, and they are looking towards a world in a total different perspective than ours. And they want a radical change because change is also uh, something, I look, if you look at the dictionary, everybody is talking about the change, but do, mm -hmm. but people, do we really want change? Because change is something, you, if you look at it, the dictionary is coming to, from one position to something that you have never been before. Right. You cannot have a micro change. You cannot say, oh, I like this, 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 I want to maintain this, but I want this, this, this to change. And you cannot create change like that. Change has to be radical. It, has, it can also have consequences, a lot of prices to pay. You can lose uh, everything maybe you own. So 
do, do you think we need that kind of a because you're talking about a political creativity about the you're also talking about that has to change but what is the boundary of that what do you think i should it be because if you look at change uh, the 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 french revolution is totally a change it is right. Uh, right. are we going towards this extreme measure of change of this radical change like we're going to abandon everything that's be like if you look at the french revolution the whole totalitarian system the the monarchies were destroyed and then the nation states were this is how turkey was formed too are we entering into a new era in history that we're going to experience this kind of change or are we going to be for example in the next 20 years totally be run by computers numbers algorithms instead of uh, a political system well you were asking about this uh, pessimistic in the beginning you said about this pessimistic approach of the younger generation of the g, g generation yeah this z generation is right they entered the world of huge inequalities of instability and uh they are pessimism or even desperate uh, attitude is correct it's basically adequate response to the situation that we live in however this uh, pessimism can, can lead either to you know passive okay uh, i give up everything is bad and then i just like like nihilism it. can it lead yes nearly yes exactly nihilism uh, or just going somewhere, downshifting, hiding, or you can make a choice of bettering the situation. Or even can I participating Mr. Minakov, yes, you can do that. But to do that, you need an ideology. You need an and I don't see as as in as in the beginning of the podcast, I told you I don't see that ideology. What is that? Because uh, if because like it or not communism was an ideology it failed but it had a vision what yes. is the ideology that is i think what is lacking today we have at least two big types of ideologies that either promote modernization for us becoming uh, more uh, free with, with more equal and living better lives economically or there's a demodernization when we move back. And this modernization, demodernization traits are also connected to the ideologies. Conservatism, revolutionary or nationalist, reactionary conservatism, it's very strong. It is now changing also democracies that came into existence in 1989-91. Or you can look at uh, external forces that try to promote uh, freedom and democracy, like in the case with Iraq. And suddenly, the result of this intervention ended up with much bigger demodernization, less freedoms, and very archaic society. Tribal structures reappeared in Iraq, in a state that used to be, you know, less religious, more open to uh, freedoms, and even some social solidarities, even though ruled by a very bad dictator. So anyway, these two uh, choice, these two options, demodernization 
going back to 19th century, for example, to imperial or very strange, these nationalistic nation states, or to move on to more globalized, to more free uh, groups. And th this will actually be the case that our societies will make, the, the, the choices will be made. So some societies, big societies or small, or urban centers, will live in a better world. Others will make choice for like the, the previous uh, forms of political life. We will return to some idealized Halifat or so, some idealized Russian empire or some you know, orthodox Christianity avoiding uh, big and strong uh, political institutions. So these archaic or early modern choices are also an option for many societies today. And here comes the moment when small groups, individualities and big societies will make this choice. We are now forced either to start new beginnings and go on with modernization or go back, demodernize. But the, the problem is that we cannot stay where we were in the beginning of 2020. Yes. But in, in the terms of this new progressive global society, also the question is that are the benefits or the advancements of this global ideology being distributed equally globally? Is no. everybody going to benefit Let's say, as you said, uh, like uh, like the poor people in Iraq, are they exactly going to benefit from this modernization like someone in the United States or someone in Italy? Uh, definitely not. These new inequalities will appear, but they will appear not only of those who live in the West, they will appear for those who live in Ukraine, in Russia, in Turkey, in Iran, at the ground. So. This world system is very unequal. When you read uh, thinkers and political practitioners who created United Nations back in 40s and 50s, they were really experiencing the momentum when all these empires or colonial systems were disappearing. The world of equal republics was appearing in the world. And Rokan and many others expected that, oh, it's the moment in, that in lifetime of our generation, all the states will become equal. And then Wallerstein and his generation comes and they say, oh, actually, if we look at the world system, it's just another type of inequality. We also we will live in the world very soon with new types of inequality. But who will benefit from what? depends on which kind of choices will be made in each collectivity, big, small. And that's, let's, uh, let's remember about this. It's up to us to progress or it's up to, to go back to regress. I totally agree. And, but also the thing is that, that if we, if, in any system, we cannot solve the injustice, the inequalities in a society, 
there is always going to be an appeal for the past. And that Absolutely. is I, and that is, I think, something that has to be overcome. And uh, I, that's that is the that is the answer for a better future. And I think that is what where you said the political creativity. What we need is to solve these problems. Once these problems always exist, there is always going to be an, an envy to nostalgia, like Trump's election. I'm going to make America great again. Mm -hmm. And this, this is always going to exist as an appealing, nostalgic dystopia or uh, an ideology. Yes, I agree. That's... Uh... That's the case, that's the choice. But also these conservative responses, the sovereignist responses like Trumpism or Putinism or what's going on in uh, Orban's Hungary or Kaczynski's Poland, these are the choices also made by big parts of the populations. And uh, this giving up freedom, running away from it, running away from adulthood and responsibility is always there. It's not always not only going in this collective past, like in 19th century, but it's also going to infantile, irresponsible situation. Oh, we just need a big papa or mama who will take care of us about us. If this choice is made, then okay, then infantile, infantile leviathans will make sure to to rule. Yes. And how how do we um, how are we going to protect our freedom? What is going to happen to our freedom? I mean, are we going to achieve this freedom to, uh, through a more collective manner, or is this freedom going to come toward an individual individualistic like uh, approach, like? You know, Isaiah Berlin, he came up with the idea of these two concepts of liberty, uh, the negative liberty and positive liberty. And that's the ideology. Uh, how, how can we protect and actually achieve our liberty through which kind oh. of choice? Very good that you mentioned uh, Isaiah, Isaiah Berlin. Yeah. Uh, because uh, Isaiah Berlin himself in his lifetime survived the revolution in Russia. And he and his family, they understood that the liberty that the revolting society reached out was of negative, uh, of negative nature. Or my, uh, my generation, my own generation, that lived through the period of destruction of Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was destroyed at the moment when it actually became free and this level of freedom was actually never reached uh, by, by the post-Soviet uh, societies, with some exceptions. Of course. Uh, this perestroika, late perestroika made uh, Soviet Union very free society and very, in a way, equal society. But then in, uh, I, my generation was witnessing how the liberty was imagined, this capitalist liberty and the return of capitalism uh, in, in our nations, and it destroyed the, the ground and the taste for freedom. So something that we wanted to have, to be free, to, to have the right to decide for, for our own 
future. Suddenly turned out into the nightmare when these external players started playing more and more role in the lives of our nations. And these big structures or non-free regimes were uh, growing up very fast. So in a way, this, uh, that generation that you were talking about will have to become the, the, as pessimistic, but also as active in creating new forms of solidarity new forms of equality, or become slaves and subjects to some tyrants. That's, that's as easy to understand as is. You were asking about these ideologies, and if you look at what's happening with new left ideas, with looking for the green liberal option, the, the new type of nationalism that joins uh, far left and far right uh, ideas, and, this could be Limonov and, uh, and uh, some far-right groups coming together, like Leta. Or in, uh, Fratelli Italiani in Italy, this neo-fascist organization that also joins far-left and far-right uh, ideological uh, ideas. So in a way, you can see that in contemporary societies, there's also this far-extremist uh, option that comes into fruition. Ideology is never ending creative process. It's political imagination and it's here. But when we make decision, it should not be imagination, but uh, the, the rationality that will make us go on to the better future. If emotions or, you know, very unrealistic imagination, it will most probably make our collectivities fail. You were asking several times about these um, uh, information technologies that can bring the change how societies live. And it's actually the case. When I was a student in medical school in Soviet Union, we were using computers a lot. And they were Soviet computers. So was the era of late 80s. And then in five years, in the same vicinities, in the same hospitals, none of the computers ever left. You can lose uh, the, the science, the technology, as easy as that, within just very short uh, time span. Civilization can, can give, go away and the wilderness or archaic uh, traits will return. So it's the, the, the value of science, the value of rationality should not be undermined. Yes, rationality has its own risks and dangers, but again, it's up to us to, to make sure that the, the IT, the, the artificial intelligence will not subdue humans in the future. So we have to make choices and we never uh, should give up rationality and we should never be too much emotional, too much uh, desperate for change. We have to move with wisdom, with solidarity and with, you know, common sense. Thank you. That was, uh, that summed it all up. And uh, I hope that too. And thank you very much, Mr. Mikhail. 
Minako for joining us and sharing your invaluable thoughts. It was great talking to you and thank you again for joining us. Thank you very much. Jaku and merhaba. <laughs> thank you. There was upon a time it was you.